Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open it up to Deuteronomy 29, 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. I had not intended on reading and opening Scripture, but I sort of felt convicted <laughs> about that. And... Uh, and also was just in a conversation right before the worship service and made reference to this passage of Scripture. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Keep that in your mind. Mark it. 29, 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Very, a very good verse that um, says a lot if you, if you really dig into it. We read, The secret things... Belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Where did Cain get a wife? Um, just throw out all these questions that people ask that the Bible doesn't address. Um, if the Bible doesn't address them, we don't need to know them. If we do need to know it, God's given it to us. Um, that sort of summarizes the, the entire point of tonight's message. So let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll dig in. Father, we do thank you so very much that you have chosen to reveal anything to us. And even more specifically, you've chosen to reveal to us your own character and your own nature. And even further than that, you've gone so far as to reveal to us everything we need to know to have a personal relationship with you and spend eternity with you. You've gone out of the way to reveal yourself to us and we are grateful. Lord, I pray that you would help us to cherish that truth and to, to really understand it for what it is. Help us tonight as we study the confession and bless our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to open up with the first chapter, or the first paragraph of the first chapter of our confession. You all last week heard a message from Austin about why we begin with the Scriptures versus why we begin with something that we might would deem a little more uh, important. We might say ultimately important. And I just want you to know I listened to that lecture last Sunday night because I was on the website I try to type out a few little sentences of description under each one of them and so I wanted to listen to it um, and I've heard lectures and addresses on that subject before um, and I knew because I had heard them I could not give them and that's why I went to him and I said you do this because I couldn't do it um, most people have not ventured into that, those types of studies. But I, I want you to know, and I've, I've told others this, what you heard last night was 
top tier, top level teaching. That, that, uh, most churches are not going to get anything. They're not, they wouldn't even know that the concept needs to be taught or studied, uh, let alone have it pr produced at that level. Um, what I'm saying is that was good, and I hope you understood that as you were hearing it. If you didn't get that as you were hearing it, as, as people like us oftentimes need to hear it two or three times, go back and listen to it. Um, but th that was good. So then we begin with the Scriptures. And I want to read the first paragraph of our confession, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Pay attention as you read the confession to commas, semicolons, and periods. That's important. We, we don't give enough credit to punctuation in our day, but um, pay attention to that sort of thing. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in divers' manners to reveal Himself and to declare His will or declare that His will unto His church. And afterward, for the better pro preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing which maketh the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people, now ceased. Or being now ceased. Now, many in our day, because of the onslaught of charismaticism and Pentecostalism and the things that we learned when we uh, watched the strange fire videos, they, they, they want to know, well, why does the confession not address that type of thing? Why does the, the confession not have a statement on cessationism or continuationism? It does. Right here it is. Right here is the passage, the chapter that deals with um, cessationism, the ceasing of uh, the apostolic or revelatory gifts. It's all found here. We'll get maybe to that in, or into that next week. My goal is to tackle this paragraph, and it's a big one, to tackle it in two weeks. And so we'll take a very small portion this week, and then we'll look at the balance of it next week. Other sections and other paragraphs, we'll be able to take a paragraph a week, or maybe, maybe we can, some of them we can, we can double up, but I'm going to divide this one up and spend some time here. You'll remember that when I gave the outline of the the confession, this first paragraph, I've called the nature of the Holy Scriptures. Now again, this is kind of the way I think. If we're going to divide the nature of the Holy Scriptures up into two parts, then we're going to have to have two more titles. And so we might call this week's lesson, The Nature of the Holy Scriptures Stated, 
And then next week, we'll call that the nature of the Holy Scriptures, Defended. So for tonight, the title, if you're taking notes, The Nature of the Holy Scriptures Stated, or Said Plainly and Clearly. Now let me read for you that very first sentence. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Now, if we're trying to discover the nature of the Holy Scriptures, we need to understand what the nature of a thing is. And we've covered this before, and I think this will come up very often. When you're trying to get to the root understanding of a thing, you're, gonna, you're trying to figure out the nature of it, like the nature of the Scriptures, the nature of God. You remember we, we spent some time on the nature of our union with Christ. The nature is the inherent character or basic constitution of a thing. The most basic constitution of a thing. So the question that I want to answer, and I think the, the, the confession answers is, what is the nature of the Holy Scripture? Or we might ask, what is the most basic constitution of the Holy Scripture? Or, in its fundamental composition, what is it? What is, when I hold this book in my hand, what is this? Now, we, we do this with our children when we have a Bible or for family worship to try to remind them, and obviously that one's not learned it yet, try to remind them that during family worship we... When, when someone's reading the Scriptures or teaching the Scriptures, we are quiet and we listen. And that takes a long time for children to learn. But one of the ways we teach them is by saying, what is this? This is God's Word. And therefore, if this is God's Word, then when we read this, God is speaking. And so when God speaks, we're quiet and we listen. And so when we ask the question... What is the Scriptures or what is the Bible? That's what we're, the question we're asking. What is it? And, and the first words of the opening line, the Holy Scripture is. Now, it will, will come in the, weeks, in the weeks to come. We'll unpack Holy Scripture. What does that mean? What are we talking about? It's not yet defined for us. But again, the, the, the signatories and the authors of this confession are attempting to lay out in one sentence the nature of the Holy Scriptures. What is it? And we might say, it is the Word of God. That, that's a simple answer. It's the Word of God. But at the same time, any single chapter is the Word of God. Any single verse is the Word of God. Any single word from the original autograph is the Word of God. What we're trying to discover is the basic constitution of the entire canon of Scripture as a whole. What is the Bible as a whole? It comes down to us 66 books of various kinds of literature bound together in a single volume. Every bit of it God's Word, but what is it as a whole? That's the question. And so here, let me read this sentence again. The subject, the Holy Scripture, 
is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. You see what's happening there. They're saying this is what the Holy Scripture is. It hasn't come down to us in pieces. It does not come down to us in merely books or chapters or verses. We learned a while back chapters and verses were ad added later. In, in the scheme of history, we've, we've spent more time without chapters and verses than we have with chapters and verses. It is a completed singular unit of inspired writ. Its contents were, at the time of their pinning, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and are, at the time of our opening and reading them, as a whole, the inspired Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. It's been preserved as a unit by the hand of Almighty God. It's been collected and kept by the church of Jesus Christ. It is one piece of literature. Some of you might remember when the question was asked, how many authors wrote the different parts of Scripture? I can't remember how it was worded. How, how many authors were there of the Bible? And I jokingly said, one, which is true. And yet, it wasn't the answer that was being looked for. But there's one author who wrote one singular body of literature. That's why we have to be acquainted with the whole of it. It is good to take the time and to dig down into chapters and verses and words and sections. But at the very same time, we've got to be acquainted with the whole of Scripture because it is one message. Does that make sense? So when I hear people, and I heard this recently say, well, I just read a few verses from this chapter and then I'll go somewhere else and read a few verses here and, and, and I, I never read a full chapter. <laughs> no wonder. No wonder there's so much confusion as to what the Bible teaches. It wasn't written in verses or chapters. And so we have to be acquainted with it as a whole if we're going to understand it. So, what does a Reformed Baptist or the particular Baptist fathers, what do we believe this book is? We, it is not God's love letter to man. It is not a history of Israel and then a history of the Christian church. It is not a magic eight ball or a crystal ball that we have to come to and, and just hope that some sort of truth begins to, to seep out. It's not a, a puzzle with a hidden meaning that we've got to have special glasses or a, a special code to figure out. What is the Bible? What is the Scripture? It is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Now let me break that up. First, there is the opening denomination, the Holy Scripture is. That tells us what we're talking about. And if, you, and you, if you're writing in your confessions, you can circle these things, and that might help you uh, when you come back to it later. The Holy Scripture is. That's what we're talking about now. Now this, I don't think what I'm about to say was planned. Uh, it just happened to work out, and I thought it was cool. Count six words from the beginning. The... 
or after, um, yeah, after is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible. And then if we count the six words at the end, all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, right in the middle of those 12 words, six on one side and six on the other, after the Holy Scripture is, we have these two words, rule of. It just happened to work out that way. It's, that's, it helps me. Rule of. Everything prior to rule of is describing this rule. Everything following rule of is modifying this rule. And so we have, and we can break this concept up now into three points. We have a rule. Secondly, we want to know what kind of a rule it is. And thirdly, we want to know it is a rule of what? A rule of what? A rule? What kind of a rule? A rule of what? So first, and, and a lot of this is not grammatically correct, I know, but we'll get through it. We'll make it. First point, a rule. The Holy Scripture is a rule. When we hear the word rule, we typically think of, don't do this, don't do that, do this, do that. We think of it as, as a prohibition or a command. But that word rule doesn't necessarily mean that. It, it means a code or a standard, these are synonyms, a standard or a system. More specifically, a rule is that which measures or determines a thing. So we could say the Holy Scripture is the standard which determines something. We'll get to that something later. If you think of a yardstick or a tape measure or a ruler, if it's made correctly, the lines are set out to tell you inches, centimeters, that sort of thing. If you use that ruler to measure something, you lay it down. Because it is correct, it tells you the length of something else. It is the standard that tells the length of another thing. It determines how long or how short a piece of lumber might be. It's a rule. That's what we mean when we say that the Holy Scripture is a rule. It determines something. It is the standard by which we measure or govern or compare, again, something. We'll get to the something at the end. So the Holy Scripture is a rule of something. Second point. What kind of a rule is it? What kind of a rule? Here we have one overarching descriptor, and then we have three sub-descriptors, or we have one overarching adjective, and then we have three sub-adjectives, four altogether, describing us, to us, telling us what kind of a rule we have. So first, this overarching descriptor, the Holy Scripture is the only rule. The only, and I'm skipping words, rule. There is no other rule of this kind. In its class, 
It is exclusive. There are no others. Whatever this rule is, it is the only one that there is. And so when it comes to the standard which determines the scope of Christian doctrine, the Holy Scripture is the only one of its kind. You hear that word? Only. But pay attention because the confession doesn't stop with the word only. And we may not stop at the word only. Hear what the confession's saying and also don't hear what it's not saying. If we stop at the word only, we can shut our confession, we can all go home, and we'd never have to get together again. There'd be no point as long as you had a Bible. But it doesn't stop at the word only. Now we move to the sub-descriptors. These, again, modify only. It is the only what? Here's the second adjective. It is the only sufficient rule. The word sufficient tells us that it is enough. It is ample. It is satisfactory in all respects. The Holy Scripture is perfectly adequate for its intended purpose. And so we read in 2 Timothy 3... 16 and 17, and I, I'm trying to read some of these, these proof texts at the bottom and, and, and in, incorporate these into the, the teaching. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, this, these things should be memorized and marked. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now notice what Paul is saying there. It's breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that, we have a purpose word, to the end of, to the final aim of that the man of God may be complete, that is capable and proficient, equipped, furnished with every necessary tool. If you're an electrician, you've got to have your tools. If you're woodworking, you want to have every necessary tool. The Scriptures are breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man, to the end that the man of God is capable and proficient, and he has every necessary tool for every good work. All deeds of good, all deeds of, of moral righteousness, all deeds of moral excellence... If there is a good work, the Holy Scriptures are profitable to that end so that you may be proficient and perfectly furnished with everything you need to accomplish that good work, that deed of godliness. You don't need anything else to accomplish that end. The church doesn't need anything else to accomplish every good work given for her to do. Another one of the proof texts here, Luke chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. You'll remember the rich man and Lazarus. 
Lazarus has gone to a bad place. Hades, the, uh, or the rich man has gone to Hades. Lazarus has gone to Abraham's bosom. And we read, this is the rich man speaking to Abraham. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them, that, was, that is his family, his living family, goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, in other words, Abraham is saying, If they won't read their Bibles, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What's he saying? The Scriptures are enough. And that's a very important thing, a very, the placement of that in the Bible as a whole. Remember, we got a whole Bible. Where was that written? That was written prior to the writing of the New Testament. And so what we learn there is at the time of the writing of the Old Testament, prior to the writing of the New Testament, those saints had everything they needed for the purpose at the time. They didn't need any more to learn of salvation, to learn of their coming Messiah, to learn of the resurrection and faith in Him. They had everything they needed. They didn't have an incomplete revelation. And the same goes for us now with the writing of the New Testament. Now we have all that we need. So the Holy Scripture is the only one of its kind that is sufficient for the intended purpose. It is the only one that needs no additions, no clarifications, no helps, no edits. By itself, it is sufficient. Third descriptor, second sub-descriptor, the Holy Scripture is the only certain rule. It is sufficient and it is certain. That means it is firmly reliable. It's sure. It's definite. It is dependable. It is firm. The reference there, Isaiah chapter 8. I'll read verses 19 and 20. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not... Speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, they have no light. Now what, what's happening there? And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers, that would be those who claim to have some keen spiritual awareness that gives them insight into the supernatural realm that the common person doesn't have. And he says, no, to the teaching to the testimony. That's where we go. We don't need to hear a word from the dead. We don't need to hear a word from those who claim to have more insight than what has been revealed. If it's not been revealed, we don't need it. The Scriptures themselves are completely and totally dependable. We can rely on them, rest in them, and know that we have everything we need in the Scriptures. So the Holy Scripture is the only one of its kind that is absolutely, unquestionably, definitely dependable and sure. It is the certain rule. Fourth descriptor, third sub-descriptor, the, the Holy Scripture is the only infallible rule. Infallible, that means it's incapable of making mistakes. 
If something is fallible, that means it, it has the capability of making mistakes. It's not that it does make mistakes or that it is making mistakes, but that it is capable. It's possible. It could happen. But if something is infallible, it's not merely saying it doesn't have mistakes. It's saying it doesn't have the capability of making mistakes. It's not possible. Not only does it not have mistakes, it's simply impossible for it to have mistakes. So when we hear someone saying, well, what about all the Bible contradictions? That's not possible. They're, they're, you're the problem, not the Scriptures. You're the problem. Again, I'll read from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's breathed out by who? God. God is perfect. God is incapable of making mistakes because He's God. If He were able to make mistakes, He wouldn't be God. It's breathed out by one who is incapable of making mistakes, and therefore His Word, which proceeds forth from His anthropomorphic heart, is incapable of containing mistakes. It can't be. And so, the Holy Scripture is the only... Again, that's a big word, right? That's, what, do we, what do we call that uh, in a marriage when you're having arguments? And you say things like, well, you never do this. Or you always do this. What do we call those words? War words. War words. Yeah, fighting words. Well, she always does this. Really, always? Like literally every single time? Well, no. Um, well, you never do this. Never like, really? Those are war words that we should not use, by the way. But usually when we use them, we know what we mean. We're not saying never. We're saying most of the time, as far as I can tell, for me to win the argument, you never do this or that. You always do this or that. Only is a similar thing. It, it's a, it's a, a war word, we might say. It's a, it carries a lot of weight. So what does the confession say? It's the only what? Is it the only thing? No. Is it the only book? No. Got a shelf of books back there, so we know that's not it. Is it the only book about God? No. Got a lot of books about God. Is it the only book about the real God? No. We have a lot of books about the real God. Is it the only book that teaches us about knowing the real God? No, it's not. Tens of thousands of books about knowing the real God. Is it the only book about knowing the real God in the right way? No, again. Tens of thousands of books written throughout history about knowing the real God in the right way. So the confession tells us what qualifiers we have to put on that very weighty word only, sufficient, certain, and infallible. If we go beyond those qualifiers... We derail. If we stop short of them, we derail. We've moved at that point away from the line of historic biblical truth. And so we begin by seeing that the Holy Scripture is a rule. It is a standard which determines something. That'll be the next heading. And as this rule, it is completely and totally adequate for its purpose, it is absolutely dependable and sure in its purpose, and it accomplishes its purpose without being capable of making mistakes. 
And in light of all of those qualifiers, it's the only one of its nature that has ever existed. There is no other sufficient rule. There is no other certain rule. There is no other infallible rule. It's the only one like those, like using those words. Does that make sense, what's happening here? So we know that it is a rule. We see now what kind of a rule it is. Now we'll answer the question, a rule of what? A rule of what? We have to understand the objective of the Scriptures. What's the goal? A lot of times when people want to argue about the Scriptures and whether or not they are infallible or inerrant, they'll throw out silly things that shows they don't understand the goal of the Scriptures. We know that the Bible addresses topics in the realm of horticulture. Right? It talks about plants and trees. And Is the Bible the only certain... Sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of horticulture? No. Ryan knows that. Ryan plants trees. He knows what trees are. I know what a tree is. That's not its purpose. What about math? The Bible uses numbers. So is the Scripture the only sufficient, certain, infallible rule of all math? Mathematics? No. The Bible addresses astronomy and the stars and, and galaxies and, and even specific... Um, constellations. Is it the only certain, sufficient, infallible rule of astronomy? No. It addresses biology, talking about the, the nature of conception and how God gives conception and, and a woman giving birth and, and different parts of a human body. Is it the only sufficient, certain, infallible rule of biology? No, it's not. The Bible addresses all of those things, and yet that is not its purpose. And therefore to say, well, the Bible doesn't... It's, it, I mean, it can't be all that we need. It doesn't even teach me about algebra. Well, that's not the purpose of the Bible. It wasn't written for that purpose. What does it say? The Holy Scripture is the only certain, sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. That's what the Bible's about. Notice the first word, all. Without exception, completely and totally inclusive of the full quantity, the full gamut of saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. That is the objective of the Scriptures. Again, we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. The account of creation in Genesis is not written to give us a rule of biology. Is it true in what it says? Absolutely it's true. But does it include every detail of... No, it doesn't. It wasn't written for that. That account was written to give us or to teach us about saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Notice that word saving just sort of as a, a, a preview of the weeks to come. Saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. What does saving imply except a saver and a savee? Someone being saved. That'll come later, but it's already implying, assuming that we know something or that we'll get to those sections and read back, backwards in the confession. So what does this adjective saving describe? Three things. Saving knowledge, saving faith, saving obedience. First, saving knowledge. We have to understand... That there is a knowledge 
That saves. Knowledge alone does not save. But salvation apart from this knowledge is impossible. In John 17 and verse 3, our Lord prays, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now we know that ultimately salvation is, again, ultimately eternal life in the presence of our God. And what does Christ say eternal life is? He says it is knowing God. This is eternal life, knowing you. And so saving knowledge is in its essence knowing God and knowing Christ. Knowing God in His nature, in His essence, His being, His work, His character. Knowing Christ in His person, His work, His purpose. Not just mental understanding, but a true experiential knowledge of these things. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, we read, My people are destroyed. Why? For lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Not only must we have the knowledge of God to be saved, but apart from saving knowledge, saving knowledge of God and saving knowledge of Christ, it, there's only destruction. It comes, destruction comes to those who don't have knowledge. Salvation comes to those who do have the knowledge. So there is a saving knowledge. And it's very interesting if, you've, if you study anybody who's ever broken up the concept of saving faith, it seems that that is what is broken up here. Oftentimes it's knowledge, belief, and trust. And there are Latin words that, that are used to, to describe those things as well. But there is a saving knowledge. You have to know something in your brain. Um, later the confession will talk about elect infants and those who are handicapped in their minds and, and how salvation works for those. Why? Because they can't, they, don't, they can't know in their mind the things that a normal person knows. So how does that work? Well, the confession addresses it. But there is a knowledge. You have to understand and know certain facts, certain things. Secondly, there is a saving faith. Saving faith. In John chapter 6 and verse 40, Jesus says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. If you read that whole chapter, which we don't have time to do, but you learn that believing in Him is, is the same as faith, a trust, a faith in Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, that leads to resurrection after death, a faith in Him. In Romans 5 and verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So not only does having faith in Jesus lead to eternal life, but as we stand before God in His presence, we are justified or declared righteous through the faith we have in the One who is righteous. 
Christ is righteous. His merit is sufficient. We trust in Him. When we trust in Him, God says, righteous. He declares us righteous through faith. Now again, if we work backwards, how could we have that faith in Christ if we don't know who Christ is? Fully God and fully man. Without sin, holy, blameless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He was perfect. He, he fulfilled the law of God. If we don't know that, then we can't say, that's who I need. That's the one I need. That's why we have to teach people about the perfections of Christ. So there is saving knowledge. There is saving faith. And then thirdly, there is saving obedience. Saving obedience. Now surely this is a mistake, right? This has got to be a a misprint. It's a misnomer. Right? I mean, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And we learned that in the Scriptures alone. Didn't these guys know the five souls of the Reformation when they talk about saving obedience? Well, again, we have to remember, and this is very important when, when people just throw out the word saved. How is a per person saved? What, when did you get saved? We have to remember that the idea of salvation in the Bible is a broad theological term. It's a category that we call soteriology. Saved, sozo, soteriology. It's the study of salvation. We have to remember that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved ultimately. Paul says the gospel you believed in which you stand by which you are being saved. It's past, present, and future. And all of those have to be considered when we read in the scriptures about being saved. Or when someone talks about being saved. Saving obedience then. What does that mean? Are we saying that I have to obey God in order to be justified by God? Declared righteous? No. We're declared righteous on behalf of the, the work of Christ and His obedience. Do I have to obey in order to be sanctified, maybe? Yeah, that's a part of sanctification. We must obey. Do we have to obey in order to be finally saved, glorified in heaven? Yes. You, there, nowhere in Scripture do we come across the idea that all you have to do is in a moment believe something and then... Just go about your business. Because you've done that, you're good. You're good to go. That seems to be what a lot of evangelicals think, especially if they have a child who walks away from the faith in their early years, lives a life of debauchery, and then dies in their sin. In this area, at their funeral, that person was saved. It doesn't matter how they lived, what they did. I remember that time they walked down the aisle and prayed a prayer. I remember when he was seven, he used to say this. I remember when he was 12, he used to go here and go there and do this or that. That doesn't matter if he did not continue in obedience. There is saving obedience. Several passages of Scripture for this. John chapter 15 and verse 10. Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If. Without keeping Christ's commandments, commandments, you will not abide in His love. You have to obey Him. In 1 John 2, 3, 
It's very interesting when we talk about 1 John, 1 John being that book that we run to, to to analyze and examine ourselves, and over and over and over he says, Obey, 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 obey. Are you obeying? 1 John 2, 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we really feel it deep down in our hearts, that's not what he says. By this we know that we've come to know him. If we prayed that prayer and we sincerely meant it when we said it, it's not what he says. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. How do we know that we've come to this saving knowledge? How do we know that we have this saving faith? Answer, we keep his commandments. We do what he says. If we do not keep his commandments, if we do not obey him, that means we do not and have not come to know him. And, and our... our um, visitation, meditation, I guess you could call it, for this, this round has been the promise of the new covenant. I will write my law on their hearts. Well, if we don't have His law on our hearts and we're not obeying, how can we say we're members of the new covenant? It's a part of it. It comes right along with it. Again, 1 John three twenty four. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we talk about Him a lot, that we really like the idea of heaven. We really want to go to heaven versus hell. Those are my options. I choose to love God. That's not what He says. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And then He follows it up, this right along with it, this is not separate, and His commandments are not burdensome. A lot of people might keep a lot of the commandments of God like this. Okay, I guess I'll obey God then. I mean, He says, if I love Him, I'll do what He says. I guess I'll do what He says. It's not what happens. The law is written on your heart. You obey from a heart that desires. It's not a burden. It's a joy. It's a delight. And another one. This will be the last one. Hebrews 12, 14. And the language of this is, again, if, if the Bible didn't say it, we would th we'd say it was heresy. Most guys who preach this stuff, people call them heretics. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we learn there is a holiness, a purity, a, a separateness, a, a separate, separateness from sin without which you will not see the Lord. If you don't have it, you will not see God. And you must strive for it. Labor for that. So if you do not strive for the holiness and achieve the holiness, you will not see the Lord. This is summed up in Matthew 24, 13. Those who endure to the end will be saved. Now does that mean that our standing before God is based on our ability to be holy or our ability to strive or keep the commands of God? No. We're declared righteous through faith. We're regenerated. Our nature is changed. And from that, the law being now written on our hearts, we love God. We keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. And we want to strive for peace with everyone. And we want to strive for that holiness. We want it. It burns within the believer to be holy. And so the sense 
then is this. There is saving knowledge that you must have in order to have eternal life. There is saving faith that you must have in order to have eternal life and, and stand justified before God. There is saving obedience that you must walk in in order to be finally saved on the day of the Lord. So where can we go to find this knowledge and know that when we find it, it's infallible? Because wouldn't it be really bad if we knew that there was a knowledge, but we didn't know where to get all of it? Or we weren't sure that if we got it, that it didn't have mistakes. What if, I'm, what if I'm knowing the wrong thing? It would be very upsetting, personally, to stand before God on Judgment Day thinking that I had known everything and He's like, ah, you were reading the wrong book. There was another one. That one's got mistakes in it. You read the wrong thing. That would be disappointing to me. Where can we go to discover the proper object of saving faith and know that it is certain and trustworthy? What if we get... We stand before God and we find out Christ wasn't the real Messiah. That maybe He wasn't perfect. And so here I've been believing and trusting in this man who really was kind of sinful. He was, he was just, a, just another man. He was a great teacher, a great prophet. That would, again, be very disappointing. That would be terrifying. To know that you've given your life to something and then realize you just had the wrong instructions. Where can we go to see all that God requires of us in obedience, knowing that nothing's been left out? Again, imagine the same scenario. You're standing before God, boldly coming before His throne, thinking, I've known, I put my faith in Christ, and I have striven for obedience. And He says, oh, you're missing this book. It had been hidden. It was written, and it was hidden. And it had a little snippet of information, one particular instruction that you forgot, you didn't get. So you did well with what you had, but it wasn't enough. You, 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 you haven't obeyed in every point necessary. That would be terrifying. The confession is saying that when it comes to obtaining that knowledge, acquiring this faith, acting upon this obedience, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard to which we can turn. And the Holy Scripture, and only the Holy Scripture, is fully sufficient, totally certain, and infallibly correct in determining, explaining, revealing, and applying all saving knowledge, saving faith, and saving obedience. That's what a Reformed Baptist believes about the Bible. In its most basic and inherent composition, it is intended to be, namely, a sufficient, certain, and infallible rule guiding men to a saving knowledge, faith, and obedience of God. In other words, as I've said recently, this is a salvation book. It's a God book. It's a Christ book. It's not a manual for, for it's not just a, merely a manual for morality. It's not merely a manual for um, learning about spiritual things. It's about the saving work of God, what He's been doing to save people. Four points of application, and we're done. There is salvation nowhere else. There's salvation nowhere else. This, I believe, is probably what has been assumed in the historical statement that outside of, there is no salvation outside of the church. Now, we hear that and we think, oh, that's Roman Catholicism right there. That's, that's heresy. Well, if they said there is no salvation outside of the Roman church, that would be correct. But 
outside of the bride of Christ that contains, preaches, uses to teach and admonish the Word of God, there's no salvation. Unless a person comes in contact with someone who can give them the Scriptures, there's no salvation. So we need to know the Scriptures. But secondly, well not but secondly, but secondly, there is no necessity for any additional revelation from God. We don't need anything else. If the Scripture's enough, we don't need anything else. We shouldn't search for anything else. We shouldn't expect for anything else. There's no necessity for any helps from just man, just mere men. We don't need business techniques and, and business schemes to teach the church how to do this or that. We don't need um, things that men can teach on their own. We might think of, um, you know, a public speaking class. I, I often think how great it would be to take a public speaking class. But a man can be a great public speaker. That's not going to bring salvation to anyone. He's got to have the, the Word of God. We can't, we don't need anything that just comes from men or any additional revelation from God. Thirdly, you can proclaim the gospel without a Bible in your hand. Now that sounds contrary to what I'm teaching, but pay attention. Again, hear what the confession is saying and don't hear what it's not saying. You can proclaim the gospel without a Bible in your hand. The power will be found in your persistence in biblical truth, but you don't have to, have, you don't have to sit here and, and read the Bible and say, well, the confession says it's the only... because it says it's the only what? It's the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule. You can preach the gospel all day long with nothing in your hands. Will you be in and of yourself sufficient? No. Will you be in and of yourself completely certain? No. Will you be in and of yourself infallible? No. But you can still give biblical truth. You can still proclaim the gospel. And the fourth one comes along right behind that and sort of explains what I was meaning there. There are helps in the area of saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. They aren't sufficient by themselves. They aren't infallible by themselves. They aren't certain in and of themselves. We should trust them in, only in as much as they seek to explain biblical truth. But the confession does not teach and we do not believe that we are to go nowhere, seek help from no one else, or that no one else has any authority or right to speak any truth in my life. If that were the case, then I would just show up on Sundays, read the Scriptures, and close. But we don't believe that and the Scriptures don't teach that. We do seek to help, or we do seek help and submit to the church historic in as much as they have sought to propound biblical truth and doctrine. Does that make sense? As, as much as they've stuck to the Scriptures, then we'll, we'll listen to them. We do believe in a leadership structure within the local, local church where the preaching of the Scriptures is authoritative. We don't come and say, well, there are two sides to this coin. Number one, we don't say, well, my preacher said it, so it's, it's fact. We don't believe that. 
We should be Bereans. I hope that you would test and compare everything I say or anybody says to the Word of God. But at the same time, we don't say, well, I mean, he was doing good until he started talking after he read the script. We also don't believe that. We believe another historic statement. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. It, is, it was meant to be proclaimed. It was meant to be expounded upon and applied. And, um, and so, in these things, is a preacher sufficient, certain, and infallible? No. Confession doesn't say that. We don't believe that. Do we believe that these things are completely unnecessary? No. Again, we have to have the only... If we stop at the only, we, we're going to derail. If we go beyond the, the descriptors of the only, we will derail. The confession is merely stating that if you want a sufficient, certain, and infallible rule regarding these things, the only place to find that is the Holy Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken. We thank you that it is sufficient for everything we need. We thank you that it is certain that we can trust in it and know that when we get to heaven and we stand in your presence, if we have obeyed your word, it is enough. It's certain. And we thank you that it is incapable of having errors because it comes from your very mouth. Lord, I pray that this, these things would strengthen our confidence in the Scriptures. And I pray that they would propel us into deeper study of the Scriptures. What more important venture could we, could we embark upon with our lives than the in-depth study of the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge and saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Lord, give us the, the eagerness to study your word. I pray that you would help us to want to study the scriptures. And as we study, Lord, speak to us and illumine the scriptures that we not, might, might understand them to the end that we might know you and worship you and adore you. Lord Jesus, we want to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.